Hello again, welcome back to Bear Books, the podcast hosted by yours truly, April Berry and Daisy Ray. We're all about appreciating indie authors, we've got interviews and reviews, also writing and reading you our flash fiction stories and those sent in by other people, and best of all, getting authors noticed by their readers. Today, we're reviewing Painting the White House and interviewing Hal Markovich, who is the author of it. It's a fun read about a house painter that has the extraordinary look to be hired to paint the rooms of the White House. While doing that, everyone he encounters sees a face that was built for listening and they all want to talk to him, turning him into a confidant of sorts. I like the painter, our main character. He's a stand-up kind of guy. He's relatable in that he's not overwritten, pompous or full of grandiose ideas and spiel that just wouldn't suit a house painter. I also like that he talks to us while we're reading with his, well, what would you do type remarks. It's engaging and kind of endearing. And I really appreciated the roundup at the end that told what happened to all the characters, like they were real people and not part of this fiction. It shows that Hal was invested not just in the story itself, but in all of his characters too. If I'm honest, the only part of the whole story that was out of keeping was the whole wandering for hours into an alternative inverse White House scenario. It seemed out of keeping in a story built around people that were written for realism. And the only part of the story I wasn't invested in. I did, however, enjoy the few days away the painter took with the first lady on the back of his motorbike, leathers, sex and rounded off with a bar fight on the way home. Perfect. What did you make of it, April? Let's have a bit of a review from you before we get to know Hal better and listen to the interview. A little bit like you. I like the last chapter, a catch-up of where everyone has ended up. Though, I must admit, I did keep thinking about the detective in Law and Order every time I read the name Van Buren. So that kind of threw me a little bit. When I actually picked up this book, I didn't really know what to expect. Painting the White House, in my opinion, I think was a little bit coloured by my view of the 45th president and the way that administration was perceived. So I did have a lot of that in the back of my mind. And I kept comparing the characters in the book to how I perceived the actual president, his family would have perhaps behaved. However, I think I could see Melania wandering off with a painter on the back of a bike. I could actually quite see that, to be fair. (laughs) I love the way the chapters were named after the paint colour of the particular room the chapter was about. However, one of the things I did question was the actual amount of paint required to paint each room. It was in the gallons. So how big are these rooms? Which brings me back to another thing that I liked about the book, which was a a quote that the painter made when he went to visit his ex-wife, Nancy. And they they were talking about the furniture that they bought. And he says that you buy furniture to fit the space you have to put it in, which I found was rather good, actually. I like the way that um, that the, the author developed the characters. I like the exchange between Iris and the painter in the chapter, the Raspberry Sorbet Room. If you want to know what that was, you're going to have to read the book. It wasn't a very long book, but it was a very clever one. Lots of characters that the author has got a brilliant way of describing. All that said, it's not one of my favourite books that I've read for the podcast. That's not to say that I didn't like it but it wasn't my favourite that I've read. What was your favourite? Oh, I don't know. There's been quite a few of them over the the series that we've done. Mounting Um, up, aren't they? They are mounting up, yes. 
And whilst I didn't dislike the book, I most probably wasn't as engaged in it as you were. No, I did enjoy it. I think because it's about people and people sell. People always want to know what other people are doing. And because it was that simple and conversations, it's like earwigging on somebody else's gossip. And that entertained me for a while. Yeah, I liked it. You might have put your finger on then why it wasn't one of my favourites, because I like a, a proper gritty story to a book. I like you, like, like I loved the bar brawl. I thought that was amazing. Yeah, it was good that bit, wasn't it? It was good. Anyway, let's have a listen to what Hal's got to say about painting the White House. Just going to pop a quick disclaimer in here. Hal was Zoom interviewing with us from a busy room that had someone else working away behind him. And that's what you can hear in parts of the interview. Just giving you a heads up there. I am about 65% of the way through reading this and it is a really good read. It is something else entirely and I actually do recommend it already without knowing the ending. So let's find out some more about it. Welcome, Hal. Uh, Hi, how are you? Welcome, Hal. We'd love you to introduce yourself in your own words. Just a little bit about you. Okay, my name is Hal Markovitz, and I live in the U.S. in the Philadelphia suburbs, where I spent 30 years as a journalist uh, for the Daily Press. I covered a lot of politics, and that kind of gave me an insight into politicians and the uh, wacky things that they do. I've also done a lot of other types of writing. I've written a lot of books for what's known as the school library market. Uh, these are books that are marketed uh, to school libraries. They're nonfiction books about topical subjects, uh, historical topics, social subjects, uh, all sorts of uh, matters that teachers might cover in their classrooms. And these are resources for the, the kids in seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grades to use uh, for their studies. So I've done a lot of that work. I've written um, another novel titled My Life with Wings, and it's about a uh, guy who wakes up one morning and discovers he has grown wings and wow. kind of spends the rest of the book trying to figure out what to do with them. And that's all, uh, all I'll go with on that one. <laughs> well, that certainly piques an interest, doesn't it? Right. So as far as uh, painting the White House is concerned, a few years ago, I was uh, doing the homeowner thing and painting the walls in my own house. And it suddenly struck me, wouldn't it be a funny idea to talk about a guy who goes into the White House and paints the walls in there? And then he gets involved in all the goofy intrigues and dramas and nasty stuff that goes on in the White House. And that's kind of where what happened. That's where the book came from. Just from painting your own walls. It's amazing where ideas do come from for stories, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> well, I'm so pleased that this one came from your mind, painting your walls. That's right. <laughs> so above everything else that you could be in life, and you've been a journalist for a long, long, long time now, what made you want to make the change and to be an author? I left uh, journalism uh, in 2006, which is 15 years ago now. And as you are, I'm sure are aware, the, uh, the daily newspaper business has really kind of gone way downhill. Yeah. It was, it was pretty clear that our staff was going to be cut back and I may or may not have a job. Uh, by that time, I was very heavily involved and, in, as I said, writing these books for the school library market. And I was able to support myself and my family on that. 
So I was able to walk away from uh, daily journalism. And over the course of, uh, you know, kind of having free time at home where I could write my, you know, I do my work at home, uh, you know, you can steal an hour here, an hour there and knock out a, a, a story, a fiction, and not have some uh, nasty editor wondering where tomorrow's story is. So that's how I kind of got into it. <laughs> that takes some dedication and talk about self-motivation. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it does. I mean, in terms of... of- and you said that the story came from kind of painting your own walls. So how did you actually plan out this story? So, so talk us through that and talk us through your writing day, Hal. Well, okay. The, um, as for the story itself, and as, as, as we discussed, I was painting my own house one day and I came up with this idea. So I decided uh, to make the painter kind of an uh, everyman type of fellow, just an ordinary guy. Uh, with some personal issues, that sort of thing. Early in the book, he uh, talks about how he wanted to become a linguistic anthropology professor. Yeah, there's a lot quite, of that in the book. I couldn't quite make it in that. And that comes from my own experience, where for reasons I never understood when I was in college attending journalism school, they made us take a course in linguistic anthropology. Mm-hmm. And I just got a big kind of funny charge out of that. And sort of made fun of it all the way through the book. <laughs> yes, you did. So this failed linguistic anthropologist is taking a job painting houses. And he uh, he's in Washington. And he paints uh, the house of a, a very wealthy donor to uh, political campaigns who uh, likes his work and recommends him to, the, to her good friend, uh, who is the first lady of the United States. And she hires him to paint the White House. And once he gets inside, as I said, he kind of finds himself involved in all the little dramas and the intrigues that go on in there. Uh, he walks in on the, he's getting ready to paint a, I believe it was a Lincoln bedroom, and he walks in on the first daughter sleeping off a hangover. And of course, she has to tell him his, the story of her life. <laughs> okay. He walks in on, uh, he, he's getting ready to paint a big ceremonial room. And he walks in on the chief of staff trying to hang himself from a chandelier. And, of course, he has to get involved in uh, all the problems that the chief of staff is facing. And this kind of just keeps going on and on. No matter what room he walks into, there's something crazy going on in there. Isn't there just? I love that he's a confidant to absolutely everybody. And I love that even though a lot of the situations are quite serious, it's still a very humorous book. Oh, yes, it was meant to be humorous. One of the things... We get back to painting my own walls. One of the things uh, that I noticed when, you know, you go out to buy paint is the paint companies come up with these very weird and strange names for the colors of their paint. You know, you just yes. can't go buy yellow or, or green or orange. You know, they, they come up with these really fancy uh, so, sort of screwball names like, you know, lemon wedge and... <laughs> and tangerine sky and things like that. <laughs> and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to really have fun with that? So I started making up these names. Let me see, so real quickly, some of them were raspberry sorbet and uh, vanilla custard, yeah. Pony Express, wild Napa grape. So what I did was I used the name of these colors for the name of each chapter because that would be the room the painter was walking into that day to paint the walls. It really worked. Yeah. I think this might be a nice time for 
you to read for us, if you wouldn't mind terribly. Okay. What happened here is, just to set up the scene a little, Painter's truck breaks down, okay, and he has no way to get to the White House that day. But he has a motorcycle, and he decides, well, my uh, paints, my ladders, my rollers are already in the White House. All I have to do is get myself there. So he gets on his motorcycle, and he drives up to the White House. Well, of course, he's met with some suspicion because you don't really drive motorcycles up to the White House. But after checking him out, they figure out he's the, he's the painter, and they let him in. Of course, motorcycles make a lot of noise, and he can't help but stir up the uh, interest of the first lady who notices that he has rode a motorcycle into the White House that day. And it turns out she's quite a fan of motorcycles, and she wants to go for a ride. So the painter, and she talks him into taking the day off and taking her for a ride around Washington, and as it turns out, other places too, on the back of her motorcycle. It's hard to imagine this really happening in real life, but, you know, we're not talking about real life here. We're talking about a made-up story. So, of course, I lost the place, but hang on. All right, here it is. The first lady's name is Janie, by the way. Okay. I saw you arrive for work a few minutes ago, Janie says. I heard a loud engine, and when I looked out the window, I saw you just pulling up on your motorcycle. I hope I didn't wake you, I tell her. Oh, I've been up for hours. Of course, I know that's a lie. She speaks again. I saw everyone surround you. At first, I thought they were going to shoot you. Me too, I say. I was pretty scared for a minute. I guess they aren't used to people on motorcycles riding up to the front door of the White House. Janie walks into the room, sits down on a mahogany chair, and crosses her legs. She lets her robe and nightgown part, exposing some thigh. She has nice legs. She leans forward and starts playing with the pink frilly part of her nightgown again. I like motorcycles, she says. Let's go for a ride. Twenty minutes later, I'm riding the Triumph south on the Beltway with Janie on the back of the bike. I am not making this up. When she tells me she wants to go for a ride, I swallow real hard and I want to ask her whether she's crazy, but you just don't say that to the First Lady of the United States. So I say, pardon me? Well, what would you have said? I've been on bikes before, she says. You wait here. I'll be right back. She walks out the door. I don't know what to do. The first lady actually wants to take a ride on my chopped triumph? How do I say no? The answer is I don't. Still a thousand thoughts are going through my mind. Is it okay to do this? I mean, is this going to be okay with the president? What about the Secret Service? They were ready to shoot me just for riding a motorcycle off the driveway. Cripes, what are they going to do when the first lady hops aboard? What if we have an accident? She's killed. I decided if we have an accident, I'd better be the one who was killed. Anyway, I'm thinking all this over, and I'm on the sort of a red haze. I start stirring a can of raspberry sorbet just to get my mind off this immediate problem I have. The red room, I decide, looks a lot redder at this moment than I can ever remember it. I'm ready. Let's go. I look up and see Janie. Boy, is she ready. She is wearing a pair of black leather knee-high boots with stiletto heels. She is wearing a pair of skin-tight leather biker pants. Around her waist is a very wide chain belt with the Harley Davidson logo for the buckle. She has on a black tank top, and I don't think she's wearing a bra. She's dragging a black leather jacket on the floor behind her. Cradled under her arm is a black helmet. She's wearing very black sunglasses and very red lipstick. Her mouth is open, and her tongue is sort of playing with her lips. Since the day I came to work here, I've never seen Janie without her hair tied tightly in a knot behind her head. Now there is no knot. Her red hair is down to her shoulders and sort of hanging in her eyes. She has thick, sensual eyebrows. I find the look very sexy. At 48, Janie looks great. She's just as sensuous as her 18-year-old daughter. 
In both cases, their beauty stems from their age. Jody has fresh looks, the type of face and figure you see on girls who are young enough not to have to work at being pretty. But Janie has to work at staying young. Upstairs on the third floor of the White House, there's a small workout room that Janie had installed in a vacant bedroom. She has a stationary bicycle and an aerobics mat up there. She also has a treadmill. Outside, there's a jogging track along the perimeter of the South Lawn, but Janie never uses it. She would never dare allow a news crew to film her while she exercises. Still, she keeps up a strict regimen, and it has helped her fight off the aging process. Right now, dressed in black leather and standing at the doorway of the red room, she looks delicious. I want to ask her if she owns a shorty Japanese kimono like her daughter, but I'm afraid she may want to know what I know about shorty Japanese kimonos. We leave the red room, and then they go on their bike rides. First of all, I'm amazed that she's got all that gear to put on. <laughs> so is the painter. <laughs> yeah. And I love the fact that he finds the eyebrows sexy. Of all the things about a woman, it's the eyebrows. I thought that was hilarious. Well, it might, you know, uh, come from deep within somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I do like the way that you include the reader with your little lines like, what would you do? What would you say? I love that. It's like he's actually talking to me. He's telling me this story. It's like uh, you're really uh, invested with your reader. Well, thank you. There are a lot of those asides all throughout the book where yeah. the painter kind of uh, does a, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge with the, with the reader. It works. It works really, really well. Yeah, it does work. So, Hal, do you put yourself into the head of the lead character when you're writing a book? Oh, absolutely. I think you have to. I mean, you have to... Not only the lead character, but every character. You have to really put yourself into the head of the reader as well. I think that's uh, something that comes from, you know, my years of journalism. Put yourself in the seat of the reader. Yeah. What is the reader going to think of this? Yeah. Yeah. Who do you see as your ideal reader? Boy, I, I guess uh, anybody wants to buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> You're not um, thinking of anybody in particular? No, right? absolutely not. I mean, I, I guess I, I'm writing them for me and hoping uh, there are other people out who like to read the stuff I like to read. It's I did answer. read somewhere, actually, that if you take all of that out of the equation and write about what you're passionate about or what pleases you or what makes you laugh, because you love it, other people will be able to see that and that will draw them to what you've written. And then oh, there's absolutely. the other camp that's like, well, I want this demographic to read my book and you sort of try and aim it at them. But I quite like the way you do it. Well, thank you. And again, I think uh, you have to make a connection with the reader. And the way uh, to do that is to, as, as a journalist would, uh, write uh, so that the reader can, can draw something out of the story. What does it mean personally to that reader? And that's, that's what journalists do. And I guess that's how I tackle fiction. The pen is kind of your sword through life, really, isn't it? Because it's what you've always done. If you've always written, been in journalism for all those decades and stories as well. That's true. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I was actually quite interested, Hal, sort of looking at, at your website, the, the painting, the White House, and the sort of weird and quirky facts that you've got on there about the White House. I mean, is this something, is, is the White House something that, that sort of interests you or? When I was writing the book, I, um, you know, wanted to make it authentic. I just didn't want to make up a story. I wanted to have true, uh, stories, not true stories, but true facts about the White House mm -hmm. so that there would be some authenticity to it. You know, what the rooms look like, 
where they are, the type of furniture in them, the type of stuff that, that the painter is going to be uh, encountering and he's going to be describing. And I wanted it to be authentic. So I started doing some research, reading books about the White House, about presidents and that sort of thing. And I started coming across and some really very unusual, very true and very wacky stuff that actually <laughs> happened in the White House that nobody that I didn't make up. What I did was I, I, I got a bunch of these together and I put them on the website. So that's where they come from. Okay. So there's lots of very funny stories and. One of the, the funniest I came across was a story about a woman named Betsy Donahue. And what happened was in the 1790s, while the White House was under construction, the White House was designed by an architect named James Hogan. He won a competition and he wanted this thing done right. He wanted to supervise the construction of the White House 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So he had a cottage built on the construction grounds of what is now known as 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington. He had a cottage built on the construction grounds and he moved into the cottage and he was able to supervise the construction of the White House 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So this goes on for months and eventually Hoban decides the construction is far enough along where he doesn't have to live there anymore. He can move back home and just show up during the day and keep an eye on things. So he moves out of the cottage. He leases the cottage to a carpenter named Donahue and his wife, Betsy Donahue. And shortly after the Donahue start living there, it is determined that Betsy Donahue is running a brothel out of the cottage. <laughs> <laughs> so the first use of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue was not what we associated with, the, with it today. It was um, something much different. The Donahues were, by the way, kicked out. So, <laughs> but that no was an surprise. enormously funny story. And there's dozens of more. And I can go on for hours if you want to. But uh, really, that's, that's one of the good ones. Uh, yeah, that's, that is an absolute classic. Yeah. Is there I'm another not, one about Elvis? There's a, a very funny story about Elvis Presley, uh, the king of rock and roll. This happened uh, during the administration of Richard Nixon. Uh, so we go back to about 1970. And Elvis was something of a police buff. He collected uh, belt buckles and badges, things like that, from police departments. He had his eye on a badge for the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. He wanted a DEA badge. So he asks around and he finds out that the only way he can get a DEA badge is to join the DEA. Well, he's not going to do that. But he thinks up this plan that he's going to get sworn in as an honorary DEA agent and the president will swear him in and he'll get his badge that way. So he calls his guys together down there in, in Memphis and Graceland and he tells them, we're going to ride over to the airport today. We're going to get on a plane. We're going to fly up to Washington and I'm going to get sworn into the DEA. Let's go. All right. So they all pile in the cars and they head out to the airport and they fly up to Washington and they get a car and they drive right up to the uh, to the gate of the White House. Elvis gets out of the car. He's wearing one of his velour jumpsuits, you know, with the with the, the cape. He goes up to the guard and he tells him he's Elvis Presley and he's the here to be sworn in by the president into the DEA. Well, they have no idea what's going on. 
You know, he didn't call ahead. <laughs> okay. So the guard calls into the White House and he tells them what's going on. And this story shoots around the White House. You know, they all gather together and they talk about this and what do we do? And then Elvis is out the door and what do we do? And they decide, you know what? This is a good idea. This is good publicity. We'll get him in here. We'll get a picture with Nixon, give him the badge. It'll be terrific. So they find some time at the uh, end of Nixon's lunch hour or something. And, and they bring Elvis into the White House. They have a ceremony in the Oval Office. Nixon gives him a DEA badge. And they take the picture. And it's my understanding that picture is still the number one selling souvenir at the Nixon Library in California. And Elvis gets his badge. But Elvis has brought a gift into the White House with him to give to Nixon. And when you look back at kind of the stuff that's been going on in Washington over the last month or so, you absolutely aren't going to believe this, but Elvis has actually brought a gun into the White House oh, to give to Nixon. Oh. <laughs> and he, brings, he, he takes this gun out. Now, it, the history doesn't record whether the Secret Service agents then soiled their pants, but uh, evidently it was okay. They looked at the gun. It wasn't. He gives it to Nixon. Everybody shakes hands, and Elvis leaves. Now, there's actually one final funny postscript to this story. Nixon turns to his aides, and he says, by the way, who was that? <laughs> Elvis somebody? <laughs> you know, my, my daughter's listening to his music, but uh, who... He said he's the king of rock and roll. What does that mean? So there you go. I love that. I love that as well. So Hal, um, what what else is in the pipeline? What's the what what have you got planned for the future? Oh well, uh, I'm working on a a book right now that is about. Well, I'm co-authoring it with a longtime politician. It's going to be nonfiction from the community where, where we live in the Philadelphia suburbs. And it's going to be uh, kind of a look at the political uh, culture of the area uh, over the last 50 or so years. And it sounds kind of dry, but it's actually a lot of fun because there are a lot of funny stories that happen. And we're kind of expanding on them and recounting them. The area we live is called Bucks County, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And the name of the book is going to be Notes on Bucks County. And it's going to be this kind of uh, historical but humorous look back at the politics of this specific area where we are. And it's not going to be a bestseller. It's kind of written more for, you know, the community where we live. Mm-hmm. So that's that's about what we're looking at. Well, never say never, Hal. No. That's true. <laughs> Is that in your comfort zone, so to speak, being factual and more like journalism than writing a fiction piece? Oh, I'll do both, really. It's, um, you know, the joys in the writing, as they say. And, you know, with this, you know, with, with a, a fictional story, you, you go sit down in your, you know, at your desk and in your pajamas or whatever, and you knock it out. Yeah. Uh, for this story, we have gone out. We've interviewed about 20 people. So, you know, we do have to, you know, put on a pair of slacks and stuff and <laughs> go out and talk to them. Get dressed. And get dressed, right. Leave the house. The pandemic slowed us down a bit, yeah. uh, but we're, we've been responsible. We're socially distancing during the interviews and we're wearing the masks and everything. So, you know, I think we're, we handled it, you know, uh, responsibly. 
but it did slow us down by a few months, but we're hoping by the end of the spring to have. Excellent. I just completed a, a book on, you know, I just played a couple of books over the winter and to just show you how different these are. One book was on the events of 2020, the pandemic, the U.S. election, uh, the wildfires, the hurricanes, the impeachment trial, all the nasty things that happened in 2020. Yeah. And the other book is on whether UFOs are real. So you can okay. see it kind of <laughs> bounces in both ways. So, so quite a diverse was, range of subjects then, Hal, that you're writing about. Oh, yeah. And that UFO book was a lot of fun to write. Okay. <laughs> I have a quick question. If you could not write again, what would you do with the rest of your life? What's your backup plan? Oh, boy, I don't know. You know, <laughs> um, let me let me say this, though. OK, I spent, as I said, I spent 30 years in newspaper journalism. Yeah. And I left it 15 years ago and I see what it's all about now, the way it's done, the way newspapers are operated, the way staffs have been scaled back. And I think to myself, I would never go into it again today. It was just not uh, the type of uh, writing I wanted to do, yeah. the type of journalism that, that drew me to it in the first place. And it's so much different than it was, you know, when I worked there. I don't think I'd ever want to do it again. Yeah, I don't blame you. Journalism is edging more towards fiction, in my well, humble opinion. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't, you know, disagree with you there. I, I think something that absolutely, I mean, just absolutely upsets me more than anything. I pick up the paper. I still subscribe to a daily paper. I pick it up every day. Yeah. You see, uh, whenever they want to, uh, interview a politician, uh, reporters today, they just pull, uh, quotes off of Twitter, oh, off of yeah. a Twitter account. Yeah. Whatever happens to calling up the politician, asking questions, pressing him for answers, him or her for answers, and maybe getting answers you didn't expect when you asked yeah. the question. Mm. Whatever happened to that? You're not going to get that off of Twitter, but they, that's the way they do it now. It's lazy journalism. and Which big figures run their own Twitter accounts anyway? That's somebody else's opinion written for them anyway. So it's all secondhand already. True. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah. We have people that write social media for us these days. We don't even bother with that. So they're quoting someone they don't even know about generally. You're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. When I was writing stories, uh, working for the, the Daily Press, if I needed a comment from a politician or a newsmaker of any sort, I called them up and I got them into a conversation. I asked questions and very often you got answers you did not expect to get. Mm. And that gave you a whole different perspective, a much different story than you may have started out with and it may have led to other stories. Best strategy to have, Hal. Absolutely. Yeah, yes, 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Sorry, I can't do it now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So for all the people that don't know about you, that are just learning about you today along with the podcast, where can they find you online? Where can we look you up, pal? Well, you mentioned my website. That was paintingthewhitehouse.com. And you'll find a little bit about me, a little bit about the book, an excerpt, a little about that other book I told you about, My Life yep. with Wings, and some of those quirky real-life true stories about the White House. I've got some of those on there as well. Oh, excellent. Oh, yeah. Social media. I'm on Facebook, but that's about it. Just, you know, type in my name and, and you'll find me. 
brilliant. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Hal, so yes, much for joining much. us. It was my pleasure. It was a delight. A very, very interesting guy. Thank you very much, Hal, for that. Yes, um, thank you. One of the things I want to say, though, about is he, he didn't portray the First Lady in a very good light at all <laughs> throughout that book. Mind you, neither did any of the characters, to be honest. But what I did like, well, though, was the fact that the book was inspired by him painting his own home. Yeah, I wouldn't have got that if he hadn't have told us. No, there's a bit of realism um, in there. And it's it was quite enlightening, I suppose, to find out that actually this is the only fiction book that he's written. He's written lots of other stuff. Oh, no, sorry, I'm wrong, aren't I? He did another fiction book. Sorry, I'm wrong there. It's not like you to admit you're wrong. I know. And it's on record that I've admitted I'm wrong. I'm going to play this on repeat. (laughs) Yeah, I would if I were you. (laughs) Right then, what have we got coming up next week? We'll have enough of that um, admitted that I'm wrong. What have we got coming up next week, Daisy? (laughs) Next week, we are back on a flash fiction week. I love these. And actually, the writing prompt for next week is Never Thought I'd Curse the Day. And we have something a little bit special, something we've never done before. One Mm. of the stories that was submitted is written sort of like a script. So what we've done is the two people that wrote it, Dean Wrigley and Tracy Spencer... There are three parts in this story and a narrator. So the four of us, April, myself, Dean and Tracy, have all taken a part of this. So you will have this story read to you by all four of us, never before done on this podcast. I'm really looking forward to that. I keep telling you I can't act. Yeah, I must admit I'm looking forward to it. Have you written your flash fiction for it yet? Mine is about a brother and sister who uncover a letter from their parents and it makes them question everything about their family history. That's all I'm giving you. That's my teaser for my story. So did you get that wandering around the cemetery then? No, I don't always wander around the cemetery. It was a one-off, although the names that appear in that story I may have seen on engraved in stone at some point. Very interesting. (laughs) I've not started writing mine yet, so I'm not overly sure what uh, what it's going to be. We shall see where inspiration takes me this week. Good, something to look forward to. Yeah. See you next week then. See you next week. If you've read a book by an indie author that you've really enjoyed, email the title across to us at contactus at barebooks.co.uk. And if we read it, we will discuss it on the podcast. Excellent. If you happen to be an indie author and would like us to add your book to our reading list, maybe even come and talk about it on the podcast, send your suggestions to submissions at barebooks.co.uk. And if you fancy a go at writing flash fiction and want the chance to be published in our flash fiction anthology for 2021, pop onto our social media for the full list of writing prompts for this season and also the word count at Barebooks Podcast on Facebook and Instagram or at Barebooks Pod One on Twitter. Thanks to Simon Strong for the musical interludes. You can Instagram him at dadnap.mp3. Stay safe until next time. Let's